Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Hello and welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado, and it is good to be back. (laughs) <laughs> We've taken a little bit of an extended hiatus, both of us actually. Uh, you've been dealing with some some health challenges with some uh, back problems, back pain that's kind of sidelined you not only from this podcast, but from Come Follow Me to some extent, which has been difficult. Uh, hopefully that's improving for you a little bit. Every day, in every way, I am getting better and better. That's a quote from Emil Coe. <laughs> it's, a, it's a quote from... A song too, right? <laughs> Is it? I mean, I know it from Emil Beautiful, Koy. beautiful, beautiful, beautiful boy. You know, it's funny you should yeah. bring up a song. Beatles, and now or you're, John Lennon. That now is. you're singing yeah. a song. I was going to sing uh, Emotion by uh, the, the Bee Gees and Sandra, what's her name? Yeah. Yeah, the, the link you sent me on Emotion. Yeah, well, that's a bit of a prelude to what we're um, going to discuss today. We're going to talk about Emotion. Uh, before we do, I wanted to just throw a little bit of a uh, a plea out to our audience. Uh, we are officially a nonprofit. We're a 501c3 designated nonprofit organization now. And I mentioned this on one prior podcast uh, that we had uh, an episode with, with Phil McLemore. But I, want, I think we're going to do this every time. We just want to make this appeal to our audience and let them know that, yes, we're a nonprofit. And, you know, we've always just volunteered ourselves to do this because we believe in it. It's it's part of our process of personal growth that we want to share with other people. And it dovetails really nicely with the larger organization's goals, that is Latter-day Peace Studies goals, of kind of promoting peace. And, and we try to do that uh, from the perspective of inner peace, right? So we, we're part of this organization, again, Latter-day Peace Studies. And we're trying to do some special things. Like we want to open up the community of faith that we belong to, to some newer ideas for some, maybe not so new for others, but some new approaches to spirituality, personal discipleship, uh, spiritual practice, and so forth. And so that mission that we have is is the reason why we do what we do here on Latter-day Contemplation. So uh, uh, along with that, you know, there's there's production, there's editing. We post this on a few different podcast services and we, you know, we have equipment and so forth. And so we do incur some costs and we would make this appeal to our audience and just, you know, ask for your help when possible, if possible. Uh, we have a PayPal link on our website, which is latterdaypeacestudies.org, where you can, in one click, donate. You can make a repeat donation or one time. Either way, we sure appreciate it. And just know that we won't earn a single penny individually, personally, off this. It will all go towards the mission of Latter-day Peace Studies to increase personal and world peace. So if, you, if that's something you're interested in and, and you have the means, we sure would appreciate your help. So thank you. 
And for those of you already donating, thank you for that. Absolutely. And thank the volunteers. There, there's people that, that work tirelessly to help us uh, accomplish our goals. And one of the most important for, for this production is, is your son, Chris. That's right. Thank you, Christian. Yeah, that's right. Thank you, Christian. Christian has been editing this podcast for almost as long as I've been podcasting with you, Riley. I, I did it in the beginning, and I, I, that was important for me to, to learn how to do it so I would be better at recording, actually. And now we count on Christian, but the Come Follow Me podcast is still without an editor. So if you know how to edit or would like to learn how to edit a podcast, reach out to us. Um, and if you don't, if, you know, if you'd like to volunteer in that way, and if you don't know how and don't want to know how or don't have time, please donate. Thank you. Yeah, and we've got other ways to volunteer too, but uh, lest we bore our audience with too much of a prelude, let's let's jump right in to our topic of discussion today, Chris. We we talked about this idea or the role of emotions, and so we're going to contemplate emotions today. And the reason why I brought up this topic with you and we kind of discussed it ahead of time is because I've been watching this series, I think it's on HBO Max, with Brene Brown. One of both of our favorites. We love reading her stuff. She's a very accomplished uh, social worker, uh, clinician, someone who's been doing this a long time, and she's learned some very important things about the role of emotions. And so as I was watching her her special on HBO, I think it's her second one that she's done, one, one on Netflix and one on HBO. Uh, this one's called uh, Atlas of the Heart. And you told me she had a book of the same title. That's right. Okay. Well, as I've been watching this, it, some, some personal revelations have occurred for me. It's been really instructive. And so I thought it appropriate to look at this subject uh, from a contemplative standpoint and maybe include the, the spiritual component to it as well, which I don't think Brene Brown goes into too much. I haven't finished the series completely yet, but I haven't noticed that. She's, she's taking a more secular approach, and which is super valuable regardless but I would like to bring in sort of a spiritual approach to this and, and perspective and, and just see where that takes us as well. So to begin with, I guess what I'll start with is this, it's not even a quote, I'm not going to quote her, but she brought up this idea that we are primarily emotional beings who occasionally indulge in intellectual, rational thought, right? <laughs> but we are, for the most part, we're guided by our emotions, so what do you just, right off the bat, what do you think about that idea, Chris? Well, you know, it's, I think most people right away would say, no, that's not true. We're rational. And, you know, yeah, our emotions, they, they come into play and, you know, they get in the way, right? They get in the way, we would say. But we don't, we, we, we know how to um, address that and how to keep those things under control and to make rational choices. And I'm just not sure that that's true. I think uh, Brene Brown might be onto something. And I think it can be so hugely instructive for us if we are emotional in that way to actually notice it and to be able to, uh, whether we need to overcome it, whether we, I don't, I, that's probably the wrong way to think about it, or whether we need to learn to work with it. That's probably a better way to think about it. As I was kind of um, thinking about the various topics we would uh, bring up during this discussion, one of them that kind of came to me, and I forgot to mention this to you, but it's it's interesting to me that when someone is emotionless, we've actually a, a attached a sort of a tag to that uh, of autism. We, we basically said, you know, th this is like an autistic quality when someone doesn't express their emotions or indulge in their emotions. To me, that's interesting. Like we, we almost think it's, there's a neurosis of emotionlessness. 
versus someone who is emotional, which we all are, right? And so what does that tell you about the role of emotions and, and how prevalent and you know overarching the, the influence of emotion is when someone who lacks the ability to express or indulge in emotions is seen as having some kind of a disability. Right. That's interesting to me. Yeah, that is interesting. It's also interesting to me being on the spectrum myself that I'm still an emotional being and my emotions still get the better of me sometimes. So it's both true and false at the same time. There's certainly a difference, right? There's there's what we call neurotypical and there's what we call on the spectrum, right? Uh, autism spectrum right. disorder. Atypical yeah. or non-typical, right. Mm-hmm. right. And so, of course, it's not black and white. Right. Yeah, we don't necessarily need to express anything in a binary here. We're very familiar and comfortable with shades, right, and, and a spectrum. And I think there is a spectrum of people who experience emotions more keenly than those than, than some others. And, uh, but nevertheless, I just thought that was kind of an interesting observation. Yeah, you know, you, now that you say experience them more keenly, it's interesting because you've started talking about autism in terms of not expressing emotions. And maybe that is somewhere like on the spectrum, right, on the one end. On the other hand, you could at the same time, you could actually be expressive of your emotions, but these emotions, there's something that you don't, there's somehow you're separate from that. You don't really, they're not integrated with you. You don't really know what they are. And that's where I think we want to go with this conversation, regardless of whether you're on the spectrum. Do we really have the emotional intelligence to identify not only I'm having an emotion, but what it is? Because I think if we can put our finger on it, then that really helps us, um, you know, if we can notice and actually specify. And that's why I think Brene Brown has all these emotions identified. You know, how many did you say? I think it's 37 that she identifies in the series. 37 separate, distinct emotions. And they're one word. Yeah, and they're, and they're one word. I was taught by a therapist who had me write down, just keep a, a journal of emotions. You know, um, at any random time throughout the day, every day, you write down how you're feeling. Again, that's emotion. What's it, what are your emotions? How are you feeling? And those feelings, they said, were in one word. And I thought that was really strict. And, you know, surely there were exceptions. But I came to understand, yeah, if you can, if it's not in one word, then it's you're not getting at the root of what's really, what you're really feeling. And so then the next thing is you, this is a good exercise, right? This is a spiritual exercise, uh, therapeutic, right? After you've kept a log of this every day, you go back and read it maybe a week later. And it's interesting because what my in my experience, I noticed the things that were repeated and I couldn't have told you before I read what I wrote that that was what I was going to find. And so it's interesting to, to note that you get into these these things that show up repeatedly and you think, oh, okay, so that's what's going on with me. So this is very, very helpful in terms of the idea of being contemplative, right? Yeah, love that. And a quick caveat emptor, which we, we're in the habit of pretty much offering every episode is that we're not experts in this stuff. I'm not an emotional intelligence expert. I'm definitely not an expert on autism. Uh, this is all experiential and we're, we're in this growth mode together. But more than anything, we're trying to create contemplative questions and ideas that cause us to sit and think and ponder and, and meditate on these things. And so that's where we're at. I, I hope, yeah, I hope, I, I hope to not have offended anyone talking about autism in any way. I mean, really, this is just observational. Well, and I, I sit here on the spectrum myself on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm not a therapist and I can't give, you know, medical advice. Yeah, exactly. So just, I can only share my experience. 
of course. And, and and that's what this that's what this whole show is about is just sharing our own journey. So okay, so we I think we're gonna start with this as a given, right? So if if we're doing a math equation, a lot of times it's helpful to have a given, a given data point or approach or something like that. And our given in this episode is that we are emotional beings, primarily emotional beings rather than rational beings. And if we can take that as sort of a, a, hy- a hypothetical or a hypothesis, I should say, and experiment upon it, I think there's some growth to be had there. Yeah. So for anyone who might be uh, doubting, you know, or wouldn't be willing to accept the premise, this major premise, first of all, you can just try it on. Just consider that this is the case. And if you want some evidence, you know, it's funny, I remember in grad school, one of my professors said, you know, people are irrational. Uh, you know this, he says, because you can see the choices they make and they do not make them better off. If they were rational, they would make good choices. And I think, well, that's interesting because I think, you know, most of us, when we are making our choices, uh, we think that they're going to make us better off. That doesn't mean we're thinking correctly. But I think in that, and there's a sense in which we're, we're, we're being rational as best we can. But again, the emotions where he has a good point is the emotions are there and they're maybe keeping us from making the best rational decision. And I'm not sure, by the way, that the best decisions are made without the emotions involved. I, I want to shoot here in this conversation for how can we integrate our emotions and our rationality so that we have both sides of the coin and not try to sideline any part of ourselves. This is who we are. This is how we're, we're made. I love that. And, you know, the other thing he says is, you know, he says, look, I mean, people, um, they and maybe this wasn't my professor, but I think all of us have heard something like this. The idea that we make our choices emotionally. Let's say I'm going to buy this car and it's really about how I feel about this car and all these things that I'm not even, again, aware of myself. What exactly is I think I'm doing here or I'm going to get out of this? And then after the fact, we rationalize our choice. Well, you know, it gets really good gas mileage and whatnot. And, and that was actually exactly where I wanted to go with that. The example of buying a car, anyone who's got any experience selling high-end goods, whether it's a car or let's say high-end electronics or a house or something, they know better than anybody that that decision is an emotional decision. And earlier you were talking about, well, how do we deal with this? And you asked this question, like this is the contemplative side of it, right? A strategy for how we might deal with that might just be sit with it. How often do we actually sit with huge decisions? A lot of times we don't. We make them in the moment and then that's what leads to whether it's buyer's remorse or some regret or whatever with the decision we've made because we say to ourselves, gosh, dang it, if I had just given myself time to think about it, I would have made a better decision. It's not that it would have been less emotional or more rational. It's just we think that sitting with the question might have given us more time to consider the pros and cons and make a better decision. Yeah, and since we don't really know in the final analysis what makes the decision better necessarily, you could even experience a wider range of emotions by sitting on the decision, right? I like to sleep on it. Sitting on it's great. Sleeping on it too, right? I have a rule that says if I didn't go there to buy it, I don't buy it unless I go back, right? I'm going to go home. I'm going to sleep on it. I didn't come here to buy this. I came here to buy that. So I'm going to buy that, not this. If I really want to buy this other thing that I saw that I wasn't planning on buying, that's next time. It's been a good rule for yeah. me. And if it's a major decision, for sure, for sure, for sure, my wife and I always agree that we sleep on it. And I've, I've come to the point in my life, and I have not always been this way, 
where if anyone applies any pressure, like for instance, if you don't buy this in the next hour or two, then you'll miss out, then let's miss out, you know, because I, anytime that pressure is applied, you know that it's coming from a sales perspective rather than what's best for me. Yeah, you can tell me I'm going to save uh, so much if I do it now and I won't save so much if I do it later. And I'll say, okay, I guess I'm not saving so much. You know, another point is um, maybe I think some would argue that all purchasing decisions are emotional. You were talking about these high end. I get that. And I, and I agree with that. But even I can think of uh, Shiloh Logan, the founder uh, of this podcast with you, you know, co-founder of this podcast and original co-host with you. He sold pest control and he trains salespeople to, to sell pest control and he deals with all kinds of emotions and as a matter of fact why are there why are there pictures of cockroaches on the side of the truck because they bring up these emotions i mean if my daughter sees a spider oh my gosh a picture of a spider that's all it takes she's going to have such a strong emotional response and she's going to say yes come in here i don't care how much it costs spray everything let's get rid of the spiders well every bad purchase I've ever made in my life that I look back on years later and, and say I shouldn't have done that has come from this place of feeling rushed into a decision. So I think strategy number one that we've already settled on is sit with it that, and contemplate <laughs> our favorite word. Yeah. Uh, okay. So point number two that I've got in our little outline here is to, is to meditate. You know, meditation increases not only our the time that we get to sit with something, but I think it actually increases our awareness and our ability to feel and have the time to identify the emotion that we're feeling in a particular moment. And so I think that contributes to this idea that naming the emotion, like we talked about a little earlier, is is an important part of the process, naming the emotion that we're feeling. Yeah, I mean, it's really putting your finger on it. I, I have an example uh, by way of analogy. I'm dealing with a bulging disc. You know, that's what my MRI showed. And when I, I was surprised that I got a written report of what's going on and not an image. I went in for imaging. Where's the image? And my daughter was telling me, Dad, you need the image so that you can see what it looks like. So you can have that in your mind, that picture in your mind, so that when you're healing yourself with your mind, you're seeing what it is you're dealing with. And I said, wow, this is, you know, my, my little girl. And I said, where did you get that idea? She said, from you, dad. <laughs> I said, okay, yeah, there you go. And I need, and, I, and it's interesting because it's been so hard to get that image. I, I think I can still get it, but it hasn't been easy. You just get this written report. Well, and I love, I love the, the kind of the background idea behind that is that approaching a, a problem from more than one angle offers us, you know, more evidence to go off of, or, you know, more, just more data, more information, right? So we always hear this, this idea that some people learn visually. Some people have to have something explained to them in detail. Other, other people want some kind of allegorical explanation, right? A, um, a cognate or a parallelism. And, and so there's different ways, obviously, and some people obviously are experiential, which, yeah, that's great too. So approaching a problem from multiple perspectives gives us more information from which, you know, that we can make a decision. My son, you know, he recently came back home from his mission with three bulging discs. And this, uh, you brought this up in my mind, so it just, it's fresh. There was, there was a sense in which, just based on his letters and stuff, he was struggling in his mission. I'll admit, you know, we kind of thought, well, he probably just wants to come home. 
and bulging discs is is the convenient though real it's very real it's a convenient excuse for him to say okay well that's just my time to come home and he went and got the mri right and when that came back to your point seeing the image of three bulging discs on his spine was like you know what yeah that's a difficult thing to deal with when you're walking six to eight miles a day tracting around the villages of Chile or whatever. And so I think that does make it more real. So if we take this given that we've talked about, that we are primarily emotional beings, let's bring God into the equation. If we are primarily emotional beings, why did God make us this way? I mean, you can ask this question. This is almost a, a theodicy type question, right? <laughs> the problem of evil in the world. Yeah. Why are we driven by these emotions? I've been, but there might be something deeper to it. Or another possi- possible question is, was I created this way, or is this a consequence of the fall? Or, or in what way? Because creationism does not uh, necessarily um, rule out evolution, right? I'm not talking about Darwinian evolution. There's, there's more to evolution than, than Darwin's ideas. Why did God create me in this way in an evo- in an evolutionary sense, right? Why did I evolve this way? You know, why? And is it necessarily a good thing? You know, is this the way to go? I think you can, just like you can sit with and get a sense of more emotions, and that might be a good thing. You know, at the same time, just thinking, you know, just, the, and this is the whole point of the podcast, right? Just to, we're bringing these questions up and, and we don't necessarily have the answers, for one, we're not experts. There's that, right? Secondly, there may not be answers. Uh, there may be, well, there may be answers, but they may not be right, right? So we're aware, at least we're aware that there is a spiritual side to this and there's a material side to this. And we say in our tradition that to God, all things are spiritual. So that's maybe a false dichotomy in some sense, but certainly there are things that we can see here, smell, taste, touch, and things that we cannot. And oftentimes, even even what we're responding to emotionally could be sensory input, but at the same time, there's it's not the sound waves coming into our ears, but this is where I get stoic, right? I start thinking about Epictetus. It's not what happens to you, but how you respond to it, right? So it's my listening. Let's put it that way. The way I hear what you're saying. It has nothing, it's not it's not in the sound waves, right? It's in my emotional response to what I what I heard, which isn't necessarily even what you said. Well, there, there's some sort of uh, aspect of exaltation, in my view, that must involve emotional development. Intelligence? The, the development of emotional intelligence, yes. Because, look, I, if, we, if we were given these, these random things, these, these feelings for a purpose, maybe that purpose is to develop or integrate those emotions and those feelings into a, you know, the rational intellectual exercises that we go through and bring the two together to integrate the two into more of a complete person. And, and maybe that's the point of it is learning how to deal with a, a wider set of inputs. You know, if you, if you're living in a stasis, a place of, you know, a lot of times heaven, uh, ironically is described as a place of, of no pain and, you know, there's no temptations and all, all of these things kind of fade away and you just live in this, this state of everlasting bliss. I don't, that doesn't. It's hard to relate to that. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, we don't relate to that. Uh, exper- experientially, we definitely don't relate to that. But it's, it's hard to even wrap your mind around the fact that that could be heavenly. 
right? Because right. first of all, and it may be we don't know. Yeah, well, and it. But from yeah. our earthly perspective, it doesn't sound very interesting. It doesn't sound interesting. You know? That's the thing. All of, all of the things no. about life that are interesting have to do with some sort of trial, some adventure, some some call to adventure, right? And there is no adventure at all without conflict or uh, friction of some kind, right? Some challenge. If there's no challenge, what is interesting about life without challenge? I was listening to an interview of Stephen Mitchell, who's one of my favorite translators. He's a translator of Job. I'm studying, you know, preparing for the podcast coming up, Come Follow Me podcast on Job. And Mitchell was saying, he's married to Byron Katie. If you're, if listeners aren't familiar with Byron Katie, her work, the work, as she calls it, is phenomenal. And it comes out of her, her own experience of suffering for about a decade of really intense suffering. And she became enlightened. She learned this work that she calls the work. She does it. It, she's, you know, this is sort of um, a Buddhist uh, conception of how to, of how to deal with these things. And she becomes enlightened in the sense that she no longer suffers because it turns out that's a choice. I mean, things are going to happen to you and they may be, um, they may be cause for, for suffering. But again, with, with Buddhism, with Stoicism, there's a distinction between what happens to you and how you respond to it. And she's learned to respond. In other words, she's, I think this is what we're talking about. She's gotten uh, her emotions are under control right they're they're under reins but this does not mean she's an emotionless being far from it just take a look at a video of byron katie that's not what's going on but stephen mitchell was saying it would be really boring if somebody wanted to make a documentary of her life today follow her around all day every day because she just doesn't suffer and she doesn't have any of these crises that you're talking about right that, that we think of this is human life right of dealing with all these issues right so he says, he points out that for it to be interesting, you would have to tell the story of how she suffered for 10 years, had these insights, became enlightened, and now no longer suffers. That's interesting. And the rest of it, he even mentions, and I feel the same way about superhero movies, these superheroes are just boring. They have no internal life. They're all virtuous. They, they, you know, if there's no conflict, where's the well, interest? There has to be an anti-hero. There has to be a villain. Otherwise... There's no story. Right, and, and this, the movies separate them. And that's what we've done with Satan in our tradition, too. I'm challenging that view. And we have recorded uh, an entire episode, at least one on this, with I did with Shiloh, on what is the meaning of Satan. And so the question is, is that something separate from ourselves, or is that just a part of ourselves? Me too. I think it's a part of ourselves. And I think we have to, with anything that's a part of ourselves, whether it's the accuser, Satan, whatever you want to call it, that our shadow self, as Jung puts it, or whether it's our emotions that, that can run away with us, we can't reject them. We can't push them aside, think that we're going to get rid of them because they're a part of us. That You have to be able to integrate them in a healthy way. And so what we want to do is become aware of them. And maybe in some sense, I said earlier to, to rein them in, to control them. I, I want to backpedal a little bit on control, right? Because that's not, it's more, uh, what would you say, Riley? It's again, noticing... I, I, yeah, I think it's about I think it's about balance and yeah. and reaction. Exactly. So like you said with the Stoics or the Buddhists, like how we react to the things that happen to us, they they have zero there's no coercion or or compelling the events. You can't change the events in in most cases, right? What you what you have some level of 
influence on is your reaction. And that only with practice, that only with, with awareness. Before that, you're a slave of your emotions, you know, and, and we go through stages and, and there's categories to this. Like you mentioned, you mentioned Stephen Mitchell's wife and how she doesn't suffer now. Well, okay, she doesn't suffer in the sense that maybe she used to suffer, but there will be another stage in her life where she will suffer again. Just like a baby that, you know, suffers when mom walks out of the nursery for 10 seconds, right? We, we go beyond that at some point in our childhood where it's like, it's okay for mom to walk out of the room for 10 seconds, but we start to experience different categories of suffering. And then those become kind of childlike or silly. And then we move on to the next stage, right? And eventually, after enough experience, the things that would cause other people suffering, we're beyond that. But that doesn't mean suffering's gone for us. Right. So we, we mentioned uh, emotional intelligence, didn't really define it. We've been talking about it. We're, I think it's this, there, there are more intelligences than just one, right? That's one thing we can say. And there are others that we won't even mention, but one of them is emotional intelligence. And so you can have all kinds of intelligence, but not have emotional intelligence. Uh, you know, this is something that, that I have to work on myself, you know, is my emotional intelligence, no matter what other intelligence I have. And that really is just a matter of, again, it's, it's actually noticing. That's the beginning. It's this contemplation, right? It's noticing and then being able to, to have it be, again, it's not that you're going to control it, but it's not happening to you. It's something that you're, that you're aware of. You're not at the, you're not necessarily a victim of it. You're not at the effect of it. Hopefully you can be somewhat at the cause of a reaction or a response to whatever's happening to you. That's going to be emotionally intelligent, meaning that it deals intelligently with the emotions. How's that for a definition? Yeah, well, I, I think it's tough to define emotional intelligence because it, there's, there's a sense in which it's defined categorically. For, for every individual person, there are aspects of emotional intelligence in which they're strong and others in which they're lacking. Uh, I, I think rarely someone's going to be bad across the board or all perfect, you know, across the board. But categories of emotional intelligence are are important to recognize, not only, you know, um, speaking theoretically, but also in ourselves. Like, what am I personally good at? I'm I'm sort of an empath. If if I if I lean one direction or the other, it's probably I'm more empathetic. I feel other people's emotions, and I have a tendency to mirror that. Whereas other people might be very keenly aware of their own emotions, but might be completely deaf to other people's emotions. And so I think there's categories to this. So, you know, I came across a sort of list of emotional intelligence skills. And so these could, these could be seen as categories, but one of these is self-awareness. And then I think the third one is awareness of others' emotions. And they, he's got, they've got them separated. And I think that's appropriate to look at it that way. Riley, there's something I've been doing to work on this. I don't know how intentionally I can say it. it's becoming more and more intentional. It started off accidental. I, I have been a big reader of nonfiction for a long time. Very little fiction, mostly classics. I've, I've, I've been reading more and more novels. This is something you and I were talking about offline recently. And I've seen a number of studies that say that this will help you become more emotionally intelligent, right? This is, this is actually therapy for me. Reading novels is therapeutic because I'm learning about, because what, how does this work, right? What happens is a novel gives you the opportunity to be inside someone else's head 
and to experience their feelings. And so you become aware. For me, the issue is other people's feelings, being aware of other people's feelings. This is probably part of the the ASD thing. But again, this is ASD does not mean that I cannot learn emotional intelligence. Intelligence is not something that you're either born with or, or don't have or won't have. Uh, and this may or may not apply to other forms of intelligence, but you can certainly learn emotional intelligence. There are, this is taught, it's learned, there are techniques, there are things to learn, and that's, that's what I'm working on. And one of them, again, is just getting an experience of other people's feelings through reading fiction. Mm-hmm. No, I love that. Um, that's the whole point of Brene Brown's series, right, is that this stuff can be learned and that we can grow in intelligence in this category. And and so, you know, to your point, for someone who's a little less aware of others' emotions, a critical skill might be just sitting with and listening to their to their struggles rather than trying to fix or offer offer your own experiences. Maybe it's just sitting with and feeling their pain. So it's like empathizing rather than fixing. I can't help but think of Job again. His, you know, the the comforters in the in the po- poetic part of the the Job, the book of Job, they first sit with Job for about a week without saying anything, just mourn with those who mourn, right? And then they just start saying things that just aren't very sensitive. <laughs> they they're lacking in emotional intelligence. And of course they it's challenging for them because they the the things that Job is saying, first of all, they're they're blasphemous. At some point, they become responsible in their context for actually stoning him to death for saying the things he's saying, and they and they but they make the the men uncomfortable, right? They, they make the comforters are uncomfortable because Job is challenging their worldview, and so what they end up doing, which I think is not emotionally intelligent, is to put their ideology before their friend. And, and their friends' emotions, right? And so there's a lesson in that for us. Man, Job is one of the most instructive passages ever written into language. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about that in a oh, couple man. minutes. I can't wait to listen to you guys talk about it. I, I, Along with you, because I've been preparing for this, I've been studying a lot of Job stuff too. And so fascinating, the depth of that, you know, short book of scripture so deep it's sort of it's like an allegory of every individual of what goes on in their life of how we react and how others react to our struggles these these comforters you know just within a few breaths later they become not comforters to him you know and and you see other people yeah they become accusers to him and and so you see you see them as proxies for the people that you're surrounded with, you know, various aspects of their personality and how they play out. They become proxies for the people that you're surrounded with. And Job becomes a proxy for you and how you go through your struggles. And it's just so fascinating to study it. It's phenomenally fascinating to me. And one of the things that's interesting about it, and one of the lessons in it about the book of Job, you know, is that in the end, God comes down in the side of Job, who is saying these things about God that that the the friends that are supposed to be comforting him think are just not applicable to God. And God comes and says, no, he's the one, Job's the one who got me right. You guys who think you're apologizing for me, like God needs you to defend him, right? That's apologetics means defense, right? Apologizing means defending. So 
you guys who think you're apologizing for me, you got me all wrong. Job gets it right. And that's really kind of surprising, isn't it? It, it is, but there's precedent, right? Uh, there was something wonderful posted the other day that I read and followed up on. It was actually posted in uh, a different group, but then reposted by Ben Peterson, who's the co-host of Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me with, with Chris. It was a talk by Aviva Zornberg called Black Sun, Moses and Job. And it's, it's so interesting how she draws these parallels. And they're really, she's really talking about emotions here because she, she identifies the difference between mourning and mourning exceedingly. Isn't that, isn't, is that the word she used, right? And how God sees that, right? So th- there right. are these people that after given some reproachment by Moses uh, as a proxy for God, they mourned exceedingly. And then they, they, they went forth to essentially defy the judgment of God in this respect. And, and we're supposed to look at it and say, well, isn't that a good thing? Like they mourned exceedingly. They were, they were repentant. They wanted to change, but they did so exceedingly. And you think, well, exceedingly is better than regular mourning. Like mourning is, is penitence. It's, it's, you know, feeling sorrow for our actions or whatever. But these folks... Israel, they were mourning exceedingly. And actually, God saw through that. I mean, this was identified by Moses again. He said, God's not in it. He's not in your penitence because it's exceeding. It's almost, there's like a falseness to it, right? Whereas mourning, not exceedingly, but just feeling run-of-the-mill mourning, that's part of the human experience. And we're not trying to make up for anything. We don't expect that our life is going to improve as a result. There's no transaction. It's just a feeling or emotion that happens in the moment. We are mourning in this moment. We expect nothing from God as a result of that mourning. It's just something we're feeling right now. And, you know, you, you talked about these, these two comforters in the book of Job and how they, they come to him and, you know, they just mourn with him for a moment. And, and then they try to, you know, later on talk him in or out of various other actions to restore his standing before God. But the, the Israelites who are mourning exceedingly, it's almost like out of place to try to amplify emotions beyond their true nature that you're feeling in the moment. And God's not in that work. That, that was an interesting distinction. Are you saying because they're, they're, are, they're succumbing too much to their emotions? Is that what you mean? Nope. I, I mean, be- I didn't get to listen to the talk. Oh, yeah. Again, it's called Black Sun. I fell asleep to it last night. Black Sun, Moses, and, J- and Job. Yeah. For listeners who aren't familiar with Aviva Zornberg, she has been one of uh, the sources Ben and I have turned to while you know podcasting on the Torah. She's a Torah teacher. I didn't expect to see anything from her on Job because it's not in the Torah, right? Job, the book of Job is in the, the writings, Ketuvim. So I was, I was surprised and I was pleasantly surprised. And I see what she did. She's relating Job to Moses. Back now to the Torah. Her, <laughs> now she, back, to, back to her, you know, um, playground, right? The, this is her sandbox, right? So that's interesting to, to, to look at, you know, anything from Aviva Zornberg is very much on the contemplative side of things. If you're looking for that kind of commentary on the Torah, she is your woman. She brings in psychology, philosophy, midrash, you know, linguistics. Yeah, she's all kinds yeah. of stuff, you know, commentary from, from ancient to modern, 
she really knows her Torah. She's a great teacher. I'm glad you brought her up. Yeah, and and I wasn't trying to say that these people were being sort of condemned for being over-emotional or feeling too much emotion. It was the fact that there was a, there was a measure of falsity, okay? So they were almost playing it up more than was natural. They were essentially hoping for a forgiveness by by putting on a production. Like, oh, this is how much yes, we're mourning. Okay. So you know how like in 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 the times when Jesus was alive, there were professional mourners. People would follow him around funerals and they'd just be wailing and gnashing their teeth and crying. With These weren't even relatives. They were hired professional mourners. And that's almost the sense I got from, from what she was relating here is that there, there's a sense in which the emotions we feel are sincere. And that's okay. It's always okay to sincerely feel and even sometimes react to emotions that we're feeling in the moment. That's okay. But the falsity that's attached by using emotions as a manipulative tool, which I think is what Israel was doing, is what was being condemned by Moses. So one of the emotionally intelligent traits then would be to be able to to recognize when we are using emotions to manipulate others. And this reminds me, you know, of pre-show we talked about Dale Carnegie's book and I brought up, that's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And a lot of it is about emotionally connecting with people. And I remember when Seven Habits came out from Stephen Covey, his point was to look at decades of what he calls personality ethic and to restore the character ethic. His, his book is really about Aristotelian ethics. Uh, for those who don't know Aristotle, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't recognize that, but it really is, as opposed to personality. And I don't, I'm not saying he said anything against Dale Carnegie, but I can see how, on the one hand, what one could learn from Dale Carnegie how to emotionally connect with people, and therefore, you know, win influence and friends, as the title of his book suggests. But you could also see how this could be used in the the negative way that I think Covey was going after, which is. I'm going to use this as a technique to manipulate right. people. Yes. And actually, in the list of skills of the emotional intelligence development that I read, it was sort of like a, a how-to for business, like how to hack emotional intelligence for your benefit. And I, I think there's some of that that you're, you're identifying here is that, and, and is being um, sort of attacked by, by Covey is that there are manipulative ways in which we use emotions to to try to influence others that are not sincere. They're not truthful. Yeah. So one of the things that that is, I think is part of our experience, part of our religious practice, but that's not something we that we talk about and put our finger on in the way that we're talking about. That I want to bring in from from an Islamic perspective, as as I'm an Islamicist. In Islam, oftentimes there's talk of niyyah. And niya, this is part of religious practice. Niya is intention. And so it's not just that you, because the idea is you don't want to be a Pharisee, right? It's not just that you perform your religious duties, but that you do it with the proper intention. And that's that's exactly what you were talking about from Aviva Zornberg, right? The idea that these guys, or even what you said about the professional mourners, they're supposed to be mourning. That's why people are hiring professional mourners, Right. But the intention behind hiring these professionals is different from the sincere intention of the heart that mourns 
in that way. Yeah, there's a difference between a professional crier and a and a mourner, right? A crier is just yeah. that's an action of forcing tears and cries to come out of your your voice box or whatever. A mourner feels that. That's an emotional connection. And if there's anything positive, uh, or I should say a positive aspect that comes out of the Carnegie book, it, it's pointing out that, you know, to win friends, at least that half of the equation, maybe not the influence people as much, but definitely the winning friends part, that's about emotional connection because people have a sense, uh, they have like an intuitive sense of sincerity. Like who's being real with me right now? And think of your own closest friends. Are they real with you? Do they tell you hard truths as well as make you feel good? Like both, you know? That's how it is for me. I, I can say anything to my, my close friends and they can say anything to me because the emotional connection is intact. Is that the case for you as well? Uh, it is. And, and you know, Covey comes to mind again because in Seven Habits, he mentions the idea of the overdrawn emotional bank account. And I read recently when it comes to marriage, the same rule. There's this rule of five, is it? I don't remember what they call it. It may be the rule of five. The idea is that for every negative interaction you have with someone, you have to have at least five positive interactions. That's to keep that balance you speak of, right? Or even the balance that, that you know, Covey speaks of, and, and he puts it in banking terms, right? You have this bank account, and are you making enough deposits of these positive experiences of emotionally relating to people before you are going to say something negative. This is something I struggle with, uh, to, and it's part, again, it's part of personality, but again, just because it's my personality, just because God created me this way, doesn't mean that I, that I don't have something to learn. As a matter of fact, I think that's the whole point. I give unto men weakness that they, that they may be humble. And so, and, and my grace is sufficient if I humble myself before God, then he will make weak things become strong unto me. To paraphrase from the Book of Mormon. It is the Book of Mormon, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. Got all kinds of scriptures swimming around in my head. So, yeah, I lost track of what I was saying. Oh, wait, uh, Doctrine and Covenants, right? Uh, I give unto men weakness. Yeah, I think that's Doctrine and Covenants. Anyway, nevertheless, um, I, I think what this helps us to do back to kind of God and spiritual matters and discipleship is to put, you know, a lot of time you and I read scripture, I would say contemplatively, but also critically. And I think that's important to do, to, to look at scripture as the product of, of man negotiating with God and interacting with other men. And when we look at it through that lens, we start to realize that, and, and you know, we take this as a given within our faith tradition in the Latter-day Saint faith tradition that, you know, things are true in as much as they're, whether it's translated correctly or interpreted correctly or whatever, you know, there's plenty of truth in scripture, but there's also a sense of, um, it's not, it's not perfect. Right. And that's okay. That's a good thing because it's actually teaching us how to approach scripture in a way that's very, um, mature. And so I think one of those tools that we can use as we approach Scripture and as we approach the history of man's interaction with God and our own interaction with God, I think it's important to recognize some of the things we've identified here as the negatives of emotion, you know, namely manipulation. You know, we're, we're constantly manipulated by, 
advertising and social media and all these things that are bombarding us with the very explicit, I would say explicit, an expressed intent of moving you in one direction or another. It, sometimes it's just... Oh, there's no yeah. doubt about it. And, and so... And it's and it's downright nefarious in some cases. The, the social media folks have huge budgets and they're hiring the most expert psychologists to manipulate people into spending more time on social well, media. Well, and lately... I mean, you don't stand a chance against them. One of the biggest benefactors of social media influencers these days is unsurprisingly governments. If there isn't a greater tool of manipulation of public opinion than government, I don't know what's bigger than government and, and you yeah. know, political parties and politicians. Their whole existence depends on moving you in the direction of their objectives. That's everything. It's not service. Do not fool yourself for a second. It's not about service. Okay? It's about moving you in the direction they want to move you to obtain their objectives. And if it happens to dovetail or overlap with yours, great. But like, I'm just saying, they're moving you. You're not moving them. They are moving you. Yeah. And there may or may not be a good intention behind it. And, and again, your intention. So maybe uh, politicians uh, or whoever, right, uh, is involved in party politics, they have in mind, you know, the greater good. And if they sincerely are seeking the greater good, even if they have the wrong idea, they're sincere, right? But I just, I think what you're hinting at is a lack of sincerity in many yeah. cases. I think, I mean, I don't think we're saying anything uh, controversial here. Uh, how can you tell? How can you tell polit politicians are lying? Their lips are moving. Right? We've all heard this one, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So that was sort of a, a parenthetical. But uh, what what I'm getting at here is we've expressed that there's a negative to uh, manipulation of, of emotions and whatnot. Knowing or or, or or taking that as a given that that is one of the negatives of of the fact that we are emotional beings, the fact that we can be manipulated. And recognizing that, we have to also say that God wouldn't do that. God doesn't do that. God doesn't manipulate people falsely. Okay, we're talking about sincerity and how important it is to, to this idea of, of emotional intelligence, right? Sincerity is another possible translation for the word I used, niya, right? That I right. said, I called it, I called it, um, what did I say earlier? Well, I talked about intention, right? Intention, uh, that's it. So it's it's intention, right? But it's also sincerity, right? That's mm -hmm. you know that that the intention is sincere. That's that's really a better translation of niya is sincerity. And so God is sincere, and if we take agency seriously, then you know God is not manipulating you, right? So that's a way to approach Scripture with a, a with a bit of maturity and say, if there are examples in Scripture where where God is using subterfuge, falsity, to manipulate people's emotions so that they will comply with some set of regulations, laws, ordinances, whatever. Can we confidently say that God doesn't do that, that people do that? Well, this, yeah, this comes back to Job again, right? Because the whole Deuteronomistic historians, you know, project from Deuteronomy through Second Chronicles is to put forward this narrative that the reason that we, when I say we, I mean the, the, the people who wrote the book, 
or the people who that it, that it comes from, right? The reason they went into exile is because they didn't do whatever it is they thought they had to do to please God so that he wouldn't let them go into exile or send them into exile. They're being punished. And the whole point of the Job poet is to challenge that narrative, to actually go, and I love that both of these narratives are included in the Bible, and the people who put it together knew it. And even the even the Job uh, book of Job itself, it has this frame narrative of you know, of the patient Job. That's the first two chapters and the you know verse seven on down through the end of the last chapter. But everything in between is subversive of that message and goes against it. And the and this frame narrative that's older is only included so that it can be challenged. I love that about the the Hebrew Bible. Well, if you want to see a contradiction in scripture, just finish the chapter, Yeah. right? It, it doesn't take long. And I don't even think the Jews believed there was perfection of expression of God's will in regards to his interaction with his children in the Bible. It, it's, it's as much a, a document that, uh, that chronicles the interactions between God and man as it is some sort of uh, how-to manual on living a life according to the dictates of of God's will for us. It, it's boy, that, I don't know if that came ac- across clearly, but I I just don't think the Jews looked at it as as a perfect book. Like for instance, you know, some of our evangelical friends might say, you know, every word of this scripture is God's truth. Well, it's it's the word of God, right? It's the literal word of God is what they're saying, right. you know. And and that's you're talking about a dictation from God, which is the orthodox Muslim position on the Quran, and it's not the Latter-day Saint position on the scriptures. Uh it is seen again, I mean it doesn't mean Latter-day Saints don't fall into the trap. I think I think many do. But the evangelicals want to say, you know, the King James translation of the manuscripts that those guys had available to them, that by the way, we have better ones now, is the literal word of God. And, you know, I love the quote that Tom Bogle brought into the Come Follow Me podcast when he substituted for me recently from Brigham Young, who says, the the Bible contains the word of God, the word of good men, the word of bad men, the word of devils, and the word the words of an ass. There's the talking ass story, right? I mean, all of that is in there, and he mentions that. And that doesn't mean that it's not valuable. He goes on to say, look, there's value in this, but you have, we have to read it right. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So I, th- I think what we, we get from this discussion is many faceted. Like there's a day-to-day life secular approach to our emotions that can really help us to navigate our interactions with people every single day, our family, friends, business associates, coworkers, whatever. And, and there's some important things that we can do, number one of, of which that we mentioned right at the beginning is just being aware, just recognizing the emotions that are part of our current state of being. Don't, they don't define us. Like it does, I don't have to say I'm an angry person. I'm a person who is currently angry or I'm a person who often express him, expresses himself angrily or reacts in anger. Those are all legit, but to say I'm an angry person is more of an identity. So I, I think being j- just aware of the emotions that we are particularly susceptible to is important, for one, just so that we can then build some sort of a strategy or a game plan around, okay, fine, I recognize that I react in anger at times. How do I deal with it? 
So I think that's kind of the step one. And that, that works for us in any facet of our lives. But then just kind of taking the spiritual practice mode and, and incorporating that into it as well. And, and we can kind of start to see a God who deals very sincerely with us. He invites, he doesn't compel. He does not coerce, but he persuades. And, and in doing this, he recognizes for sure that we are going to have emotional reactions, even to invita- in invitations because of where we might be in our current state, whatever. And that's, and he validates those emotions. Like he mourns with those who mourn, you know, when, when we have a direction to do something and we're like, ah, that really hurts. I don't really want to do that. I think, I think he gets it. I think God gets that and mourns with us that in that expression of, of pain, you know, or suffering and validates it. And that's okay. But to compel compliance, I mean, we know uh, we're very fond of saying that that's Satan's plan, right? Right. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of the Buddhists and the Stoics again and of, in connection with the Buddhists, you know, of, of the work of Byron Katie and what I said earlier about how sometimes, again, it's the Stoics would tell us and, and so would Byron Katie and the, the Buddhists, you know, that how we respond um, it's not what happens to us, but how we respond that, that makes a difference, you know? And so the, the Stoics, they realize that, that there are impressions that are made on us, on our own souls, as they would put it, and our own emotions. And we have to actually be able to look at those things objectively, which is the opposite of my listening is colored by what I think I already know you're going to say, right? Or, or, yeah. And so we have to be able to look at what is coming at us objectively that's emotional intelligence right to be able to to be able to see those things objectively and that way our response isn't to our response is to what's actually coming at us not some false impression and i think that's what the the um stoics actually call it in the greek fantasia which is where we get our word fantasy right that, that that's not a correct impression that's something that you're misreading what's coming at you and so that's a lack of uh, emotional intelligence that causes that We've spent several episodes and parts of many episodes talking about Stoicism and some of these other practices, and we always do it in the context of a practice. You know, when we talk about meditation, it's in the context of a practice. This is not an event. And I I think that building emotional intelligence, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about this, but there are practices that we can incorporate that are going to increase our emotional intelligence through the practice. In Stoicism, one of the things that we've actually spent a full episode on in when we talked about memento mori was contemplating our own death. Why would you do that? Why would you contemplate your death? Well, it's so that when death actually does confront you, whether it's yours or someone else's, you've practiced this many times. You've worked it through in your mind and in your spirit and in your heart. And you, know, you, you kind of know how you're going to react. And so you can, you can have a a sense of stoicism about this, right? Not to make a circular argument, but essentially we've learned how to deal with it. Well, this is no different. Yeah, I mean, you are preparing to be a philosopher. To be a stoic is to be a philosopher. And to be a, a philosopher in the sense of the stoics in their time and place and context is a way of life, right? This is how to live. And as Michel de Montaigne put it later on, uh, the, to study philosophy is nothing but to prepare oneself to die. That's the whole point, right? Is to 
to to live and examine life because there's also right Socrates an unexamined life is not worth living. It's to to examine your life to lead a contemplative life that then prepares you for your ultimate uh, destiny, right? Maybe not your ultimate death either, right? Because I, I, we we've talked destiny. about on this program. It, I I know you did. I'm just saying maybe not your death though because we've talked about on this program more than one reading or understanding of death. Like there can be successive deaths. And so uh, part of the practice of Stoicism and, and one that we're even talking about here is preparing ourselves for maybe successive deaths. Whatever the transition is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, death is a transition. And we usually think of it as this this biological life we, ends, right? But really your life can end without your biological life ending and, and you have a new life. And that's part of the idea of, of religion, isn't it? That's baptism. That's changing careers. That's right. I mean, you don't have to die to to die. Does that make sense? I mean, you don't have to have a biological death, a cessation of your biological functions to die. A part, a, a way of life can die. And the same thing happens for entire societies, right? The end of the world. That's another one. We can take the the idea of the end of the world as this one time event. That may or may not be the case, but certainly the world ends all the time, you know, with the, and a lot of times it's something like we recently had this pandemic, right? Back when you had the black death, you know, the plague, this ended the world that there was before it, where the merchant class could at best serve the the governing class as bankers. And that's what the Medici did. But when so many of the, of that ruling class, you know, died during the, during that Black Death, that gave an opportunity for the merchant class to marry into, and instead of just being, you know, servants to the to that class to actually be a part of it. And so that world that was before ended, and a new world order came about. Well, our own our own death will should happen many times before our mortal frame passes on. And one of the ways that we can grow and develop emotional intelligence is to let the aspects of ourself that lead us into bad decisions and toxic emotional uh, interaction, let that stuff die through practice, through a practice of contemplation. Um, and yeah, I, I want to read something real quick that is, it's out of the Nag Hammadi scripture of the Gospel of Philip. It says, those who say that the Lord died first and then rose up are in error for he rose up first and then died. It's talking about Jesus's ability to to grow, even though he's the Son of God, he he learned line upon line, precept upon precept, and I think that's the the model for us. So as we as we seek to try to develop emotional intelligence, you know, knowing that it's a process, um, mourning through our our various deaths and stages of development, totally okay. We can rely upon God to be our faithful companion in that growth and to mourn with us. Um. But recognizing that we are primarily emotional beings and that this is a big part of our our development as humans, as spiritual beings, is, I think, really important. So, Chris, what else do you have to uh, add as we as we wrap up? Well, again, I'm tempted to sing from the, the song by the Bee Gees, Emotion, but I won't. <laughs> we'll, we'll reference it so if you want to if you want a cool song check out the Bee Gees Emotion <laughs> I just had my birthday where, where typically uh, there's a disco party there was no disco party this year 
I, I can't, <laughs> I can't dance right now. You know, uh, my family went on vacation without me because I can't travel. But they did play disco music at the restaurant where I went for my birthday lunch. How about that? They must have known I was coming. <laughs> but there's one yeah, emotion by the Bee Gees. Thanks for listening. As always, please, you know, like, subscribe, comment, share. The best place to rate the podcast is on Apple Podcasts, right? Even if that's not where you usually listen. I prefer Stitcher for listening myself. There's some podcasts that I listen on Apple because that's the only place they are. And then, you know, if you'd like to interact with us on an episode by episode basis, there's always, we share the episode in the Facebook group when we post it and on YouTube. And those are two places where you can actually comment on a particular episode. I don't understand why podcasts, you know, apps don't have this ability to comment on podcasts. We'll keep mentioning that until somebody hears us. Yeah, but join up on our page. Uh, You can check us out on Latter-day Peace Studies on Facebook. Uh, You know, Chris and I are open to to messengers uh, messages as well. So hit us on Facebook messenger. Uh, we're very open to feedback about shows, new ideas, whatever it is you want to comment about. We're, we're very receptive. So this is about you guys as much as it's, as it's about us. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, this has been another episode of Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>